chapter 26. Quentin was elected on Tuesday, 27th October 1931, with a fairly narrow margin. His opponent from the Labour Party kept hammering at him on the issue of unilateral disarmament. Quentin opposed this because it would cause even more unemployment. Ever since his son had been attacked in London, Quentin was very focused on unemployment. To his credit, he had never used the attack in a speech, but it became general knowledge anyway. Rather than undermining his credibility, it helped his cause. People said, Quentin is one of the few rich people who has suffered more than financially. They assumed that he would fight hard to restore employment. By the end of 1932, the situation was becoming truly desperate. Solutions abounded. Free trade, protectionism, unions, breaking the unions, government spending, raising taxes, lowering taxes, deficit financing. But everything seemed intractable. Nothing worked. Society reformed itself again and again like a mouse in a lab contorting itself to avoid random blows. Still, the ranks of the unemployed grew. And everything changed with it. Youths lived with their parents longer. Marriage declined. Children were postponed. Creativity in the workplace declined. University students stayed in school. The regular rhythms of life were undermined. The allegiance of the youth fell away. Mired in habits and slogans, elders were revealed as impotent. Society had nothing to offer the young and so could command no obedience. The social contract weakened. And yet, there was a salvation in society. All was not lost. In desperation, thinkers of every stripe turned towards the government to solve the problems. Freedom had proven too unstable. The concept of the benevolent state was born, and it was a very new beast. For most of human history, of course, the state was a rapacious predator, providing meager protection at a most terrible price. Ordinary men quailed in its presence. War, repression, random punishments, and the denial of basic rights. The state was military in nature, endless in authority, murderous in practice. Governments were not born from the desires of the ruled, but from outlaws too lazy to move on. And the free countries, the countries which had tamed the state and made it serve the individual, they had been attacked by a militaristic, statist Germany, and now, shuddering and bleeding under the wound even 14 years later, they turned to the state to protect them again. Thus can the body weaken further, even after throwing off the infection. At the turn of the 20th century, Churchill and others had been involved in the great debate of protectionism, and it was a debate lost to the memories of the younger generation. The protectionists they opposed had a simple argument. We can help English workers by taxing goods coming into the country. It was such a simple argument that it seemed hard to oppose. Certainly English workers favored it, as did English manufacturers. English consumers would have opposed it, but the problem was that the rising costs and subsequent fall in employment only occurred about two years after such tariffs would go into effect, and it was hard to fight for a few pounds a year some years in the future. Churchill and the free traders had replied with a more complex argument, so it was quite surprising that they had prevailed. Their argument was, as all sensible arguments are, 
in politics and economics, the denial of short-term gain for the sake of longer-term gains in both prosperity and stability. If you allow the government to create preferential policies for discrete sectors of the economy, then the government will end up being run by industrial concerns, who will bribe, threaten and cajole it into giving them benefits. All the energies thus expended will fail to be expended in improving productivity, or creating new methods of manufacturing, or decreasing investment in failing industries. The voice of those who benefit from government favoritism will be everything. The voice of the average voter will be nothing. It is profoundly anti-democratic. The government should never have the ability to hand out specific favors to specific groups. The rule of law applies to all, or it applies to none. At the time, this reasoning had won the day, and so England's increasing wealth prior to the Great War became taken for granted. The freedoms which allowed England to become wealthy were forgotten, and so its future became more threatened thereby. And so, in the 1920s, there was great agitation by business owners, unions, and individuals who still had their jobs. Everyone wanted something from the government. Everyone wanted action. And this was, for Quentin, the most surprising aspect of being an MP. He received over 200 letters each and every day. He was collared on the streets by endless, grasping, desperate hands. He felt a little like God held aloft by streaming, begging prayers. Everyone felt that if Quentin only understood their plight, he would surely do something. Wide passions roamed England's green and tranquil hills. Every day, Quentin rolled up to his office in a taxicab, and every day he rolled a little closer to the door. He had originally allowed himself to be driven only about two-thirds of the way, but as his fame grew, he found that he could spend an hour or more pressing through the endless bodies of those in need. Rank, stinking children were thrust into his face. Babies with sores were held aloft. Young men showed him their ribs. Old women showed him their bald spots. Once, horribly, a woman with an infant cried out that her breasts were dry, lifted her shirt, and grabbed them right in front of him. Nothing! she cried out over and over. However, once he got to his office, all was not over. Other politicians came to see him in various degrees of despair and belligerence. They needed help passing their bills. They cared nothing for him, only his vote. They had a hundred other men to see. They had no time. They asked him what he wanted. They offered eternal allegiance. They mocked his inexperience. They wanted to show him the ropes. Everyone had an opposing absolutist version of how things were done. Quentin found the whole process dizzying, overwhelming. Nobody wanted him to review the facts. Everyone pressed him with assurances and then railed against him when he hesitated. As the first few weeks passed, he began to see how things really worked. It was quite simple, actually. There were two rules. One, groups gave you money to get elected, and then you paid them back with favors. Two, you got as much government money for your writing as you could. If you got a lot, you got re-elected. If not, you were gone. At first, Quentin tried to put these two rules into a business paradigm. The groups who had funded his election campaign were like investors. The favors and money they wanted in return were like returns on investment. 
the need to secure government money for his riding was like getting a larger market share. This helped briefly, but there was something else within him, something which never lay still. It twisted below his heart, uneasily like a dozing wind-blown hat. Everything here is just words. When he had been in real estate, land changed hands. Before that, he had used military contacts, sure, but at least at some point an airplane was bought and sold. But what moves through my office? Words and laws end distantly, darkly, inevitably. The police. It was a lovely office, and it swelled Quentin's heart considerably. It had stained glass windows six feet high, an enormous globe, circa 1790, which had been pilfered by some MP in the distant past, stood by his huge mahogany desk. He had seals and stamps and endless leather-bound volumes of law and parliamentary procedures and hand-side recordings of past debates. He had two assistants, two secretaries, a researcher, and a salary of £600 a year. It was not enough for him to live on. At the turn of the century, British MPs were not paid. This was, oddly enough, popular because it was believed to prevent corruption since it kept anyone without a good income away from politics entirely. This was not the case with Churchill, who was perennially broke, but then he made a reasonable fortune from his writing, and so was beyond the temptation of bribery. One of the reasons for England's success in the 19th century was that the lawmakers had little interest in capitalism or capitalists. They had no need for money and little respect for money men. So the money men left them alone and, having no chance of increasing market share by manipulating the law, had no choice but to become and remain productive on their own merits. And so England leapt forward as an economic power. Another aspect had changed, but it seemed churlish to speak of it. Throughout the 19th century, there were property restrictions on voting. The reasoning was simple. There are many more poor than rich people. If everyone has the vote, all that will happen is that the poor will vote to take away the property of the rich, and so all will become destitute within a few generations. It would be like having patients and doctors having equal votes about whether or not medical bills had to be paid. A majority of guilty, happy souls, and soon, no medicine at all. But that was all gone. The poor could vote, women could vote, and with this landslide of suffrage, the whole delicate machinery of the long-term benefits of society was torn apart by the endless grabbing of endless hands. Everyone who had a problem wanted a legal, punitive solution. Cheap cloth coming in from India? Well... We could innovate and risk all our capital, or we could get it banned and rest easy. Innovate, ban, innovate, ban. Let's get old Quentin on the phone. Or, we want to go on strike for more money, but there are a lot of unemployed men who would take our jobs for less money. What to do? Wait until conditions improve or get the government to ban scabs. Wait, ban, off to London we go. In short, everyone wanted the golden egg, and soon... There was no more goose. Quentin was surprised 
that so few of his supplicants approached him with the air of someone seeking a favor. Oh, no. Rather, they barged in and leaned on his desk with their fists, and he could see them, wanting to raise their voices, and their eyes flashed. And it did not seem that they were asking for his hand in marriage, but rather saying, We shall be married, or I shall have my way anyway. This shocked Quentin, who had grown up with a great respect for authority. When he was young, one did not go to one's headmaster and ask for an exemption from an exam, as if one were going to collect a debt too long unpaid. Quite the contrary. One went, cap in hand, grateful for the time, and hoping against hope that one's petition would be approved. And if not, why then one thanked, bowed, and left in silence. But not any more. All that civility had gone the way of the dodo. Now, everyone represented something else, something greater, something which could not be denied. Businessmen wanting Quentin to level taxes against a competitor did so under the banner of the national interest, and had endless charts and documentation to prove it. If Welsh porcelain production is allowed to diminish, one man asserted, the empire will surely fall. Unions did not want to retain their paid dues and strangleholds on shop floors. They did not petition for the sake of themselves or their workers, but rather for working men everywhere. How could he argue against working men? Everyone said that whoever they represented would remember every decision Quentin made in their case when re-election time rolled around again. It felt to Quentin as if he were standing in a broad and endless battlefield. He had the morphine, the bandages, and the expertise, and was bound by his Hippocratic oath. And thousands of arms tore at him, screaming and demanding that their wounded brethren were the most in need of his succor. If he questioned anyone or stood still in mute indecision, why then he was damned for a fool, a blackguard, a wilting Nancy boy, a stumblejohn. Didn't he know that it was an emergency, that everything was in crisis, and that dilly-dallying was tantamount to letting people die? Everyone had their own singular need, which was their whole life, their future, their livelihood, the very food on their table. Everyone was in a panic, in a rage, in extremis, and knew nothing about the arguments forwarded by those whose demands were in direct opposition to their own. The workers wanted job protection. The owners wanted to lower wages, since they were selling fewer goods. Actually, Quentin noted, the owners generally understood their workers' desire for more wages since one does not become a successful entrepreneur by becoming indifferent to wealth. But the union reps all believed that the owners were just using the present crisis, a crisis which they brought on mind to stick it to the working man. They cook the books and make it look bad, and then try to roll back a century of union gains. No proof could be brought to bear on the question. The union leaders would accept no proof. They knew all about the logic of the system, thank you very much. His... Constituents seem to know nothing of compromise. If I save you, who shall I damn? That meant nothing to them. But of course, those who knew about compromise would probably never end up in my office. It took about five months before Quentin felt disgust towards those who came for his aid. They just needed and wanted, and there was no end, no bottom. If the country hadn't been in the depths of the Depression then he would have seriously considered pitching it in and decamping to sunnier climes. But then, the past 
caught up with him. If a man lives long enough, it always does. This was one of Quentin's typical days. He arrived at his office at eight o'clock in the morning. He read the newspapers, as well as the transcripts of the previous day's speeches and resolutions. His secretary, Clara, also informed him of any house business that day. Then the great procession began. The great procession was the modern pilgrimage, except that there was no respect for the great modern god, the politician. Quentin had become so used to the combination of deference and rage people used to pry favors from him that he had internal monologues which he used on each person who came and sat in front of him. To a woman wearing a loose floral dress which was completely asexual, who sat, her back rigid, her voice tense, her face immobile, he wanted to say, before she had even opened her mouth, Yes, yes, you want the government to give money to pregnant women. You also want the government to provide daycare centers for working women. Now, this is not presented as beneficial to working women or pregnant women, but women as a whole. It is a woman's issue, you say, but let me ask you this. How do the higher taxes required to pay for these programs benefit a woman with a good marriage, raising her children, whose husband has a job? Could we not say that women with children who cannot find or keep a man to say nothing of the women who have children out of wedlock are irresponsible? To have children when one cannot get or keep a husband is surely the height of capriciousness. To ask women with stable, happy marriages to pay for the children of single women is not a woman's issue. It is an irresponsible woman's issue, if it is anything. But he did not say any of the above. Instead, he made sympathetic noises, slow, nodding assents, and no commitments. An older man in a top hat came in, ostentatiously not removing his top hat until he sat down. The argument rose in Quentin's mind. You are a representative of the carriage makers, and are in a froth about the advent of the automobile. You believe that because your business has existed for 500 years, that it has become an institution. You employ thousands of workers who all vote, and you will demand that I do everything to ensure that such a valuable contributor to English business, society, and not incidentally to the Conservative Party as well, remains a viable concern. You do not tell me that you, your workers, and your shareholders will lose money if you do not survive. You do not ask me for a personal favor. Oh, no. You come as a representative of tradition, continuity, and the national good. But let me ask you this. Were you to focus your efforts on upgrading your industry instead of resting all your hopes on government intervention, could you not quickly outstrip the fledgling automobile manufacturers? Also, why should the consumer be penalized for the invention of a new and very popular mode of transportation? If I give you money or suppress the car manufacturers, then everyone pays more. Where is the justice in that? And, last but not least, if you are so important to the fabric of British society, consumers will doubtless agree and purchase your carriages instead of the new automobiles. But if the average Englishman does not care to support your products of his own free will, why should I compel him to do so? Another man would come in, also well-dressed, but usually younger and often more aggressive. Ah, my young friend, you represent linen manufacturers who are facing dangerous competition from America and India. You want me to raise tariffs against these evil foreign businesses who have access to child labor, protective subsidies, and favorable climates. You also represent the thousands of English workers whose jobs are threatened by this influx of cheaply made foreign goods. But if I raise the price of cotton, 
then more money flows to you, and less to every other industry. You get to keep a few thousand jobs, but many more would be generated by leaving the money in the hands of the consumer. Because, say, from placing his money under a mattress, there is no way for a man to avoid helping the economy with money he has. He spends it? Good. He buys stocks? Good. He puts it in the bank? The bank lends it out? Good. And is there nothing which can be done to improve the efficiencies of your business? And again, if you feel that your cotton is so important, then take the campaign to the public. Instead of spending money lobbying the government, buy adverts to inform the public that if they don't buy British cotton goods, it is a very bad thing. And then if the consumers agree with you, you are fine. If they do not, who am I to compel them to act against their will? Buying Indian cotton is no crime. And, oh, the teetotalers. They were very special. They were inevitably matrons, radiating tense unfulfillment with every sharp breath and short snort. They had been cruelly disappointed by men. They had a father who drank, or a brother, or a husband. So, Quentin imagined saying, you want to get rid of a substance which 95% of the population either abstains from or enjoys responsibly for the sake of the 5% who do neither. Thus we must ban sugar for the sake of obese people. Or you want me to ban alcohol because you neither like nor appreciate it. Thus we must ban meat for the sake of vegetarians, cars for the sake of poor drivers, complex novels for the sake of the uneducated, and sports for the sake of asthmatics. And a drunk is a miserable and committed man. He will always get his drink. But the social drinker will not. You will not help those most in need of aid. Just deny an inoffensive pleasure to those with self-control. No help for vice, just the punishment of virtue. And the very idea that private vices are under the purview of the state is abhorrent. The government is not a parent. It is not a social worker. It is not a governess. It exists to protect the property and lives of those who cannot protect themselves. It exists to restrain criminals and repel invaders. It does not exist to snatch the martini out of the responsible man's hand. And... To the Scottish man, insolently underdressed, Ah, the Union man, welcome! Come and tell me endless tales of capitalist perfidy, helpless workers caught in the rending machinery of bottomless greed, men without choice, without self-respect, who toil and toil and are spat at without compassion. You represent the working man, and then you sit and tell me that you demand that the government pass laws enforcing closed shops and the imprisonment of replacement workers, or enforce seniority. You want a world where your workers are taken care of at the expense of the general welfare. A man cannot work in a factory you control unless he pays you your union dues. And then you complain about the monopolistic greed of the capitalists. You force union dues from a worker and then channel it to the Labour Party or the socialists or communists, which he may violently oppose. Forced association is a violation of freedom of association. And what about replacement workers, the scabs? Surely these are working men in an even more desperate position than the workers you claim to protect. But you want them thrown in jail for offering to work for less money than your men. How then can you claim to represent the working man? You do not. In seniority? In a changing economy? How could it ever be argued that someone who's been around for decades is more valuable than a new man? And if an older worker is more valuable than a younger one, why would he need the power of the state to protect him? All labor laws exist to protect the incompetent. No, my friend, if you want to argue that scabs are evil, then bring your argument to the consumer. Say, this company uses scabs, do not buy their product. If the public agrees with you, you have won. 
If not, how am I justified in compelling them? There were, generally, two kinds of supplicants who made the great pilgrimage. The first were the moralists, and they were endlessly, inevitably, insane. They had all the monomania of displaced emotional damage. They had sacrificed too much for their cause. Their opinions were unalterable. Their demands were chillingly anti-democratic. Their view of human nature was appalling. They never begged for personal charity, but demanded universal justice. Quentin was almost reminded of a boy at his school many, many moons ago who had responded to losing an argument by starting a fist fight. Everyone broke up the fight and looked at the belligerent boy with scorn from then on. To resort to using your fists when your tongue has failed is the most humiliating admission of impotence. But it happened every day in his office right there across from his desk. The argument was always the same in its essence. Others will not give me what I want voluntarily, so you must force them. Now, Quentin had tried to explain this many times to the endless representatives of universal morality, which descended on him like scabrous seagulls on a hunk of bread. But over and over he found that expressing reservations about methods was interpreted as a lack of compassion. When did this perfidious virus enter the social bloodstream, he wondered. It seemed inescapable. Every time it was the same. It was a three-part argument. This is a terrible problem. Using force is not the answer. Don't you care about the problem? It was the force part which everyone had a problem with. Actually, Quentin found it was more than a problem. People really, really, really could not see that the government was nothing but an agency of violence. The government had become some sort of genial, wise, fair, and omnipotent father figure. Have a problem? Talk to a politician. But they really don't understand the issue of force, Quentin thought in amazement, as yet another discussion end up in belligerent incomprehension. No one likes to be thought of as an agent of violence. They all wanted to believe that they were right, so right that enforcing their rightness at the point of a gun was completely just. They wanted to be right in the way that victims of crime were right. Beaten children were right. Cowering women were right. They wanted to be so right, so cornered, that levering the infinite canon of the state towards the ramparts of the general population was the only moral and acceptable action. They were always in a panic. The panic was easy to detect on the part of the women because they generally got shrill when contradicted. The panic of the men was more subtle. They listened reasonably and carefully to all of Quentin's arguments and then returned to their original points. When this was pointed out, they agreed and then returned to the same points again. Their panic only really showed up in the blank inflexibility of their positions. One man, after listening and agreeing with Quentin's arguments that state subsidies to the coal industry would damage the economy, changed tack and argued that instead subsidies should be offered to the steel industry. Quentin was a man with secrets and obscurations, but he had a strange shortcut to truth, which was probably due to his lack of experience in politics. He felt 
that if you could not state your position simply, there was probably something very wrong with it. You want state subsidies? Then are you comfortable saying, my industry should be allowed to take money from an unwilling population at the point of a gun? Very few of the men were willing to go so far, and Quentin should be given much credit for this. Not many of them changed their minds, but he changed their hearts, which took some of the wind out of the sails of their subsequent pitches to other MPs. The women, on the other hand, were much more... What? Well, shrill was unfair, dogged was closer, and even closer was consistency, but it was a word with unfortunately positive associations. When Quentin pointed out that they wanted to use state violence to achieve their social goals, they often took it quite in their blue-stockinged stride. They smiled and nodded in their, it's a shame that the world forces us to do such things, but they had some sort of moral justification which entirely legitimized the use of force. Quentin could never figure out what it was, but did realize that he was unable to take the wind out of their sails in quite the same way as the men he opposed. There was another kind of supplicant. This man, and it was almost always a man, was not at all interested in morality. He was usually a hail-well-met type of fellow who was eager to clap hands on a mutually beneficial bargain. This supplicant usually represented financial interests and had the backing of one or more conservative MPs. The group he represented had given a lot of money to the party, controlled a significant voting block, or owned a newspaper. These supplicants, the pragmatists as opposed to the moralists, were not initially as interesting to Quentin, but became more so as time went on. Their interest was openly stated as a fee-for-service, the return of a favor. They lied to themselves, of course. They tendered bids when they knew there was no possibility of competition. They cloaked naked self-interest in generalized do-goodery. But they did not claim to represent the universal good. They were not supercharged with some holy mission. They were more than willing to compromise. They were not hysterical with haste. They took their time. They laughed a lot. They saw nothing wrong with what they did, but it's a game. The moralists were hard to take, but easy to understand. The pragmatists were easy to take, but hard to understand. Quentin did probe them at first a little. They were equally curious about their own motives, but utterly unable to penetrate them. Huh they would say when questioned about the ethics of their position. That's an interesting point. I would say that I try to provide the best possible service to my clients. I do the legwork. I know the paths of power, and I appreciate what they're trying to do. All of this was earnest, glassy-eyed, and utterly unrevealing. It was the mission statement of an assassin. Client satisfaction, reasonable prices, punctuality, a swift clean-up. After six or so months of this, Quentin became weary of it all. Truth be told, it was not the most ennobling of pilgrimages through his office. People who are happy and self-sufficient rarely fasten their fangs onto the powerful. People who are their own masters do not enjoy the deference of supplicants. He became tired of it and began to crumble. 
endless, insistent, belligerent need, is a hard force to withstand. He found himself agreeing with the pragmatists and swelling with self-righteousness with the moralists. At first he shook his head to clear it. After a time, though, he found his own eyes becoming glassy. It was easier to go along than have the same argument every single time someone sat down across from him. I keep getting wiser, but each new one is as stupid as the last. In the Conservative Party, he was viewed with amusement. Most of the other MPs were career politicians with no experience in or aptitude for other fields. Never, remarked one bitter Labour newcomer, was the house so full of men who could never earn six hundred pounds a year any other way. These men had no interest or desire to antagonize their constituents. They agreed fluidly, murmured inconsequentially, denounced magnificently, and scorned openly. They considered themselves forces of nature, filled with all the hopes and desires of those they ruled. They rarely argued, but were masters at impugning motives. Of a man who counseled an increase in defence spending, they said, he enjoys rattling his sabre, and, to give him his due, he does it well. Of a man who opposed self-rule in India, they said, he is a throwback to the 19th century, and does not realise that the age of empires is over, poor man. Of a man who opposed state intervention in the economy, they said, he is quite out of step with the times, and represents all the vain tragedy of those who fail to adapt to their circumstances. Of a moralist, they said, he is posturing for his own conscience. They sneered at all ideals, considering themselves pragmatists. They said, of the long term, in the long term, we're all dead. They considered the belief in the virtue of the British way a noble lie, designed to distract and entertain the masses. Essentially, they did not differentiate between political systems. They found Mussolini charismatic and struggled to find ideas of his which might work in England to show their broad-mindedness. They appreciated that Quentin deflated the moral righteousness of some of the lobbyists because that allowed them to focus on pleasing those who would help them most, regardless of their moral outrage. They called him the vicar, because they thought that his morals were of the small-town, small-church variety. They thought him an amusing, inevitable, and often quite useful fool. Quentin quickly gave up arguing with them, not the opposition, but members of his own party. Quentin was not a moralist, not exactly, but he liked things to be out in the open, this mental habit was, perhaps, a reaction to over ten years of living with the obscure ailments of his wife, or having been exposed to Tom's bottomless desire for clarity. He took politics seriously and hated facing the jeers of his fellow conservatives. As far as Quentin could see it, the amorality of the other MPs came down to a double, circular argument. We are in power to do good. In order to stay in power, we cannot do good. This was most helpful. They picked a course they considered good, then compromised it endlessly in order to stay in power to be able to pick other causes and compromise them endlessly. It was all rather silly, in fact. Silly, but not without its reasons. Long summer breaks, 
good pay, a lot of attention. These scabrous seagulls always hovering, descending, begging and bullying. It was heady to be the focus of so much need, so much desire. It made every day an exciting adventure of fencing with parasites. One morning, after listening to a representative of the Women's Christian Union, 10,000 votes, Mr. Spencer, you would be wise to remember that, who grilled him for half an hour about his views on banning alcohol, Quentin took a few minutes' break. Now, it was an odd thing, but the truth of the matter was that Quentin did not really like people that much. He did not like to argue with them. He disliked their emotionalism, their irrational, absolute convictions their greed, and their pathetic. They come whinging into my office demanding that I help them, that I damn well have to help them, and they do nothing to make themselves appealing in any way. They treat me like some goddamned underling when I have achieved more than they are ever likely to. He did not mind the businessmen so much. They were less emotional, less belligerent. They strove to offer something of value in return for his aid. Fine, so it was still corrupt, but it was corrupt like ancient Rome, which felt better, more civilized than the kind of stick em up he got from the moralizing petitioners. They wore nice suits and sat properly, chin up, shoulders back, had usually been to war, and were quite eloquent. They argued for the common good, and if that failed, they appealed to goods of a more personal nature. They promised that he would be re-elected. They offered to give money to charity. Twice he was offered direct bribes, but they were both times from linen manufacturers from Liverpool, so he put it down to regional differences. He turned both offers down, but did not prosecute. Bribes were just so unnecessary, but it was hard to explain just why a bill became a law or it did not. If it became a law because of bribery, an unthinkably risky and expensive proposition, then it would not last. Any law which distorted economics, which did not have the protection and maintenance of a substantial long-term group, would be struck down within a few years by those who were harmed by it. So bribery was nonsense. There were threats, of course, which were generally political or personal, but their value was limited. Political threats were only effective if they were limited in number. If a hundred groups streamed through Quentin's office, each threatening to prevent his re-election, Pleasing any one of those groups, and he could as best help only a small number, doesn't matter. So I convince one of seven snipers not to shoot me? Also, if enough people became abusive, the job of MP became less pleasurable, and the retention of office became far less of a treat to be dangled. Oh, I could have another few years of life in a cage with you lot. Thanks, but... Also, the more groups that threatened Quentin, the more possible became the great Counter-Strike. If all demands became impossible and no one could be satisfied, then he could play his Vox Populi card, appealing directly to the voters, who had, after all, voted for him, not for the local union or society of cotton traders. Yanking up the political veil could send all these roaches scurrying and gain him great repute as a kind of shining British sheriff. Personal threats were much more difficult, of course. It was impossible to become an MP without taking money and making promises. It was just too expensive and resulted in too much power. The rewards for an individual group which found out something provable and unpleasant about a politician was so great that it had become a common strategy. 
Naturally, it had to be something bad. An affair with a pretty woman was not enough. The English have always had a soft spot for their rakes. It allows them to pretend they're Italian. An affair with an ugly woman is better because it seems to indicate perversion. An affair with a boy is very good and more common than it was suspected when the practice post-wild began. It shouldn't have been, but then few of those looking for such things had gone through boarding school. Financial scandals were only middling. The average voter found them hard to understand, and the educated, especially among the young, had become so immersed in Marxism that they considered owning a house to be a financial scandal. No, it had to be a good, old-fashioned, criminal problem. Something which indicated a lack of character in a way that an affair did not. Something which could not be brushed away with a publish-and-be-damned flourish. Something which stank, no matter how it was expressed or from whatever angle it was regarded. The question of self-rule for India was Quentin's first exposure to the true machinations of Parliament. The Great War had murdered the empire. That was a simple fact. Everyone knew it, but also failed to know it. This kind of maze was very confusing. When Quentin was in the army, it was a habit as certain as breath, that any time anyone took over a project, they would stare in disgust at how everything had been done before, pour scorn on the fool who had preceded them, tear everything up, start with a clean slate, and repeat every mistake of their predecessor. This same pattern, he found out, took place in politics. The British rule over India, the Raj, was just wrong. No one took the time to understand why it had been put in place originally. What were the British trying to achieve when they began their rule over the Indians? What were the conditions like in India before then? What kinds of groups in India agitated for self-rule? Responsible rational groups or packs of religious hysterics with itchy, dusty swords? Was it people who wanted mature self-rule, or disaffected dictatorial groups who had lost power under the egalitarianism of British rule? What kind of society were the Indians proposing to create? What would happen to all the people that England had sworn to protect? These were questions that did not matter. It was right to let the Indians rule themselves. Why? Because of the right of national self-determination. The Indian nation was seen as an unjustly imprisoned man, and the British as his jailer. Freedom! But it was not so. India was not one person. India was a seething pit of warring tribes. Old wounds bred fresh hatreds. India was not unjustly condemned. India, if one man, was a man given to wild rampages, child abuse, and self-mutilation. But that also did not matter. It did not matter because the idea of national self-determination was a holy right and could not be reasoned away. But why India? Quentin wondered this sometimes when he sat in his office smoking a cigar, feeling too exhausted by his day to go home and walk on eggshells around Ruth. The answer was disarmingly simple. India was a most expensive colony, and we are almost bankrupt. It still struck him as odd, but pleasing, that when he now said we, he no longer meant the British, but the British government. We have no money, and must cut expenses. For some reason, however, this could not be said. Everything was wrapped in abstract 
lies. It would be, Quentin thought, as if I had gone to Tom and Reginald when I could not afford to keep them in school and said, boys, all your education is just capitalistic propaganda and I cannot in good conscience fund it. He had not expected that his life in politics would be more honest than his life in the military or in business, but he had not expected that it would require so many more lies. But, but not lies. That was the damn problem. It wasn't that lies were required or disseminated. That would have been all right. One could have fought that. It was, rather, that being in politics required a staggering devotion to blindness, and then blindness to that blindness. We cannot afford India. Could that be spoken? Could that be the basis for discussion? Boys, I cannot afford to keep you in school. Sorry, India, our crusade to keep you civilized has been undone by the Hun, and we must retreat back along the channel once more. Our world reform has been stabbed in the back, and we must recall our police. For some reason, that could never be said. Why? Quentin turned the cigar on his ashtray, rubbing the ash off in a slow circle. They cannot speak pragmatically, because they are nothing but pragmatism in practice. Everyone in Parliament spoke about the good, their devotion to interests over and above petty ambition, but everyone acted to advance their careers. It was a vicious circle, clear to a newcomer. Everyone wants to pursue the good, but pursuit of the good requires being in power, and so the good becomes staying in power. Quentin sighed and shrugged. He didn't care much about India. He just wanted everyone to speak the truth. He knew the truth. We cannot afford India and tried bringing it up in discussions, but was ignored or sniggered at or had eyes rolled at him, and the conversation flowed on regardless. At first his helplessness in the face of this contempt had disarmed him. I am not normally such a fragile hibiscus. But it became clear to him one evening. It's that damn wife of mine. To give Ruth her due, she had willed herself into a kind of brittle, cardboard political wife. She gave him the impression of an animal in a zoo which had finally resigned itself to captivity, but dreamed of African plains in heaven. Patience, quiet, and then release. It was quite an odd notion for an atheist to have, but there it was. But the years of her depression... Quentin sat weighing his doctor's advice with the pleasurable waste of time involved in having another cigar. He decided to waste time by postponing his decision. Ruth had been depressed for twelve years, certainly when he came back in 1919. What the hell had he done during all that time? Not professionally, that was obvious. He had clear memories of all that. I mean, sexually? Well, he admitted, he had had some sympathy sex with alienated wives. Poor Quentin, he practically lives without a wife. But like all such charity, it left him empty and unsatisfied and worse off than before. Even his orgasms, which had to be brought down like elusive game, seemed like little spasms of elegy. And the afterwards, oh, the disentangling, the throwaway promises to be in touch... As he went down the stairs, he thought of the women going to the bedroom to bathe him away, then repairing their makeup and having a nap, 
the exhaustion, the lack of energy of it all, and his anger, his endless anger towards his wife. Quite early on, Quentin had come to the conclusion that Ruth was suffering from a case of terminal self-pity. Others lost fathers, but carried on. His basic belief was that Ruth had been raised as a princess, and her vanity could not stand the sudden demise of all who admired her, all who deferred to her. Her complete inability to negotiate was one source of the anger that raged within him. Every time he tried, most reasonably, he might add, to sway her fixed opinion, she turned away or wept without sound or stared at him a thousand maddening miles away. At first he had been sympathetic. Her loss had been absolutely catastrophic. But after eighteen months, when she seemed to be getting worse, not better, he began, at first against his will, to take it personally. What, one living husband cannot compete with five dead relatives? The fact that she preferred to lie with the dead than live with him offended him beyond words. And then he was caught in a terrible crossfire. His sympathy began to drain away, drop by drop, displaced by a liquid of a more acidic nature. He stood over the prostrate form of his wife, wanting to hold, wanting to hit. He felt that a lack of sympathy would not help, but his sympathy was fading. He tried, in a spasm of rather cloying concern, to sit with her, ask her questions, and rub her hand, to infuse her with his waning regard before it dried up completely. She appreciated, of course, she appreciated everything, but it achieved nothing. The more he tried to help, the more his desire to help disappeared. And then, like a businessman pouring more and more money into a fading concern, he went bankrupt all of a sudden. It was irreversible, absolute, and it felt like the worst defeat of his life. How the hell did I get here? He wondered, reaching for another cigar, another half hour of empty peace and quiet. Of course, India, my colleagues, why they cannot see the truth, why I cannot understand that they cannot see the truth, my wife. Halfway through his cigar, Quentin's phone rang. He picked it up without thinking. Dad! Reginald? Yes, thank God I found you. Where are you calling from? Euston Station. Back so soon? Yes, but I'm not alone. All right, what's the matter? I need to come and see you. There was a crinkly pause. Sorry, we need to come and see you. Who? There was another pause. We'll talk about it when we get there. I'm almost finished. Why don't you just meet me at home? No, that's no good. We'll be there in half an hour. All right. Half an hour? Why was Reginald home? He was supposed to be in Europe for another three weeks. Half an hour? Quentin settled back in his chair. Well, it seems that the fates really want me to have just one more cigar. Reginald entered without knocking. He came into his father's office, followed closely by a tall, thin, lovely woman in her mid-twenties who wore a floral print dress that Quentin could see in a moment was deference to their idea of what he would like. Not her style at all, no, sir. Father, 
cried Reginald, coming around the desk. For the first time in their relationship he shook his father's hand with two of his own wrapped around it. Quentin felt it immediately, the hard coldness. He glanced down as their hands separated. I see. Reginald followed Quentin's downward glance at his wedding ring then threw back his head and laughed giddily. Oh, and here I thought, we thought, that we were going to have to tell you. The woman leaned forward, saying in a low, musical voice, It is a great pleasure to meet you, Mr. Spencer. Father, this is Wendy Moulinex. Quentin shook her brittle hand. He glanced at her waist, unable to help himself, wondering at its capacity for fertility. I know that all the young men want this waspy waist, but it is most impractical. Weak wrists and thin waists do not bode well. Add lustrous hair and a lovely face, and we become most likely to end up exchanging a daughter-in-law for a grandchild. Quentin sat back in his chair. Wendy coughed slightly, and Quentin became aware of how much smoke congested the air. He leaned back in his chair, twisted around, and pushed open a window. Though somehow I don't imagine that this is the first time she has been around smoke. The two of them sat down across from his desk. Wendy's demure posture and clenched thighs spoke well of finishing school, though this did not surprise Quentin. This girl oozes money, and not new money at that. Oh, Reginald, why did you not do this damn fool thing when I really needed some money, when I was on the campaign trail? Then, by God, I would be independent of all demands. Father? asked Reginald. Yes. Thought we'd lost you there for a moment. It must be quite a shock. I'm sure it was very romantic. Oh, yes, cried Wendy. That's good. Now, since I was not present at the wedding, you must tell me every detail. Well, said Reginald, we'd known each other for three weeks and spent every day together. The story did not take long. They fell in love quickly and had the idea that their personalities interlocked in a way which made them far stronger together than they could ever have been apart. There was something a little desperate in the formulation, as if by finding each other they had managed to dodge some terrible but essential ordeal. They seemed happy, but it was the giddy daring of having made an impulsive decision. But it will be good for his career, thought Quentin then, reproached himself. Now, Miss Mullinex, he said. Mrs. Spencer, Wendy, please. In time, said Quentin a little tightly. I have not had the chance to have a fatherly interview with you. I shall not say denied the chance, since I want to leave your mother some originality, and so I shall have to ask you some questions now. By all means. She did not glance at Reginald, but gazed straight at Quentin, which pleased him. Your family. We have lands south of the Scottish border. We have a considerable income. We were immune from the crash. I have been well educated. I have a younger sister and an even younger brother. I have never been engaged before, though I have been asked. I, and forgive me, dear, I wanted to wait. My family will be appalled. They and I cannot help but fear that my siblings will take their cue from me. Why not wait, Reginald, other than the obvious? Oh, said Reginald, colouring, not that. It was because, he smiled apologetically, I never suspected myself of having a sentimental streak, so was taken entirely by surprise. It was 
that we met in a specific place and fell in love in that place, and I did not want for us to come back and be married in a completely different place, which had nothing to do with our meeting or falling in love. Hmm, grunted Quentin. Your mother may have different ideas, but I, for one, have never gone into all the pomp and nonsense of weddings. It's barbaric and medieval and feminine. Women can vote nowadays. They are educated, accomplished, and may pursue careers. They grab and hold every pleasurable aspect of equality with men. But then, ah, then when it comes time to get married, suddenly they want to go back to the Middle Ages. Kneel before me. Father, give me away. I want to wear white. Not that I'm making any assumptions. And then after the marriage, I want to be equal now. It's all foolishness and vanity. And I cannot fathom why modern men put up with it. Quentin paused, noticing their slightly shocked faces, then smiled ruefully. Dear me, I am sorry. Now that I am a politician, I'm always giving speeches, even when they're not wanted. My apologies. Come, stand. Let us stand and shake hands on your union. They stood and shook hands. Quentin kissed Wendy on the cheek, and then he called for a taxi to take them to see Ruth. As they were leaving Quentin's office, Wendy put her hand on Reginald's and said, But isn't there another interested party? In London, in his room, Tom was slipping from reading into dozing when the downstairs bell rang. No one else was home. He jumped up, feeling guilty, as he always did, when he was caught napping before bedtime, although the number and length of his naps often meant that he slept in fits of one to two hours, three to four times every twenty-four. He glanced in the mirror over his desk, noticing his dark hair spiking up, and licked his hand and tried to rub it down. Damn, the one day I did not shave. Smoothing his shirt, he went downstairs and opened the front door. Quentin, Reginald, and a tall woman stood there. "'Not interrupting anything, are we, Tommy?' asked Reginald with a thin smile, and Tom went from calm to clenched in a heartbeat. "'Come on, old sport,' said Quentin, taking Tom by the hand. "'Home we go.' "'What's up? Hello,' he said, inclining his head towards the dark-haired woman. "'Hello, Tom,' she said, extending her hand. "'My name is Wendy.' "'I was going to do that in the taxi,' said Reginald irritably. He turned and walked to the curb, then threw open the taxi door and got in. Quentin and Tom exchanged glances, which was rare for them. Tom's said, What's going on? Quentin's said, He should have opened the door for her. In the taxi, the suddenly augmented family sat across from each other on facing seats. The lights of London played over the glass around their heads like fireflies in a high wind. A spray of dust and grit rattled one of the panes of glass by Reginald's head, and he jerked it back. "'Is everyone all right?' asked Tom, frowning at his brother. "'I mean, you're back awfully early.' Reginald looked away. Quentin said, "'Reginald has just gotten married.' "'Uh, I—' Tom paused. He glanced at Reginald, who returned his gaze painfully. "'Well—' "'Reg, congratulations. I hope it wasn't in London, or I shall be most offended.' There was another pause. "'It was in Spain, actually,' said Wendy, staring at Tom and touching Reginald's knee. "'Gosh! What happened?' "'Well, we've already told Father once,' said Reginald. "'We might as well wait and tell you and Mother together. I'll feel like a broken record.' "'We'll have to get used to telling the story over and over, dear,' laughed Wendy, and there was something a little brittle in her laugh.' and Tom's heart suddenly dropped a few flights. "'It's not going to be the last time, unless we send out a typewritten synopsis,' 
She paused. She was going to say more, and not a little scornfully, Quentin and Tom knew, with all the sensitivity of having lived with Ruth's mood swings. But Wendy stopped, closing her mouth in an odd manner. Her pink lips closed, and then kept compressing to the point where they turned almost white. Quentin and Tom had the same two thoughts simultaneously. We have probably only a month or so before she stops closing her mouth, and we are rapidly becoming outnumbered. They spoke little during the remaining twenty-odd minutes of the taxi ride. Just before turning onto the driveway, the taxi hit a rock and lurched to one side. Sitting next to Quentin and across from the newlyweds, Tom noticed that Wendy reached out to hold Reginald's forearm, but Reginald moved it away, almost simultaneously. It wasn't as if he saw her hand approaching and moved his arm away. The two events happened at the same time. Turning around to look at the house, Tom suddenly remembered the first car that he had ever driven in and his fascination with its windshield wipers. Sitting in the back seat when he was 10 or 11, late at night, he watched the white dance of rain on the windshield and became fascinated with the wipers slithering back and forth. And it seemed to him that they were like two men, the right one taking from a pile in the middle, which should have been shared. The left wiper noticed the theft and came back to defend the pile, just as the right wiper withdrew. Then the left one retreated, and the right one darted back and stole again. Although it was cool in the car and very late, and he was buried under his own anorak and his father's coat, Tom had been unable to sleep. He kept opening his eyes, hoping against hope to find the windshield wipers in the middle at the same time, pressing forehead to forehead and sharing their loads. All right, said Quentin after they disembarked, their faces pale red in the departing light of the taxicab. So how do our new lovebirds want to approach this? Well, sighed Reginald, we make the big people decisions. We'll have to take it on the chin. That's a mixed metaphor if ever I heard one, murmured Wendy, but only Tom heard her. She spoke up. We have three options, see? Mr. Spencer talks to Mrs. Spencer. Reginald goes in to talk to her alone, or Reginald and I go in together. Not that, said Tom, feeling a little shiver. She'll need a chance to digest. If this undoes all my hard-earned work, warned Quentin, then glanced at Wendy and closed his mouth, compressing it in a similar manner as she had done in the taxicab. Reginald murmured something. Pardon? asked Wendy, leaning towards him. Reginald scowled. Tom is the golden boy. If she has to hear bitter news, he is the only messenger she would never shoot. Reginald, cried Tom, almost laughing. I'm not going in to tell Mom that you up and got married in Spain. Not when you're standing out in the hallway. Well, it was just a thought, said Reginald. I mean, if it's an imposition. It's not that, said Tom, shaking his head and smiling. There was another pause. None of them really wanted to go in. In Reginald and Quentin's minds, various stratagems were being turned over, all of which involved hiding Reginald's marriage for some undefined period of time. But there were two problems. One was that Wendy would probably not react well to the idea. The other was that there was no end game to the strategy, or rather that the end game would be Ruth finding out about the marriage months after the fact and turning Reginald's Spanish romance into her own Spanish inquisition. Quentin also thought 
She was easier to manage when she kept to her room. No chance of accidental congratulations wafting out from the bodies in her closet. "'You and I, Tom,' said Reginald eventually, with a forced, hearty tone. "'Your marriage, Reginald. I'll come in after you've talked.' Reginald sighed. Tom and Quentin both tried to remember the last time they had found both Ruth and Reginald in the same room at the same time. Tom's memory trailed off. Quentin's meandered back to the giddy days of breastfeeding. Not that he ever took the nipple, the tricky bugger. "'All right, then,' said Reginald. He took Wendy's hand, and they all mounted the grey steps to the front door.' 